Hey everybody, this is Glenn Greenwald. Welcome to another episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. Um, we never got around to creating a inventive name for it, but it's kind of already growing on me. I feel like this episode is already a success since the last episode I did. I did everything correctly. I entered the room. I was very ready to go at the anointed time, only to discover 15 minutes into my discussion that the entire time my microphone had been muted. So I realized I had ended up having a very entertaining and compelling and fascinating discussion solely with myself. It seems like this time I remembered to unmute myself. So presumably you can all hear me. So we're already off to a better start. As the title of the room indicates, I want to spend some time talking about racism accusations in liberal discourse, and in particular, what I think has become the promiscuous and rather reckless use, or I would even say exploitation, of the term white supremacist or its cousin insults like racist or white nationalist in liberal discourse. And I have found myself talking about this issue a fair amount this week for reasons that I want to get into a little bit for just a second. Um, Probably many of you already know that the way that uh, Colin works, the feature that one of the features that makes it so exciting is that it's interactive. So if you're in the room, you don't have to just listen. If you have a comment or a question or anything else like that, that you want to ask, um, you can raise your hand and indicate that and put yourself into the queue. And then I will, Uh, as soon as I possibly can, once I'm done making a few points, uh, take as many calls as I can. I'm probably going to go about an hour tonight. I I can't really go much longer due to some time constraints. Um, So I'll try and leave as much time as possible for the interactive part of the show. What, What animated and catalyzed my focus on this particular question this week was the Rittenhouse case, which I've discussed here on a few occasions, and in particular, an article in the Washington Post, a news article on the Rittenhouse verdict that I found quite fascinating, not only because of what the article said, but because of the reaction it spawned, or more accurately, the lack of reaction that it spawned, which was extraordinary given how significant I found the article's core admission to be. So. The Washington Post article, it was in the style of a kind of fact-checking article, this sort of, we're here to chide both sides, the left and the right, for exploiting the Rittenhouse case as a canvas on which political values and broader proxy wars could be painted without either side carefully Mm -hmm. adhering to the facts of the case. So it was the Washington Post stepping in as the adults to kind of denounce people for having clung to narratives that weren't very carefully grounded in the facts. And they were here to tell us what the facts really were now that Kyle Rittenhouse had been acquitted. And there was kind of a huge irony, first of all, to the style in which this fact-checking article was written, which is that if you look at it now, the title of it is Rittenhouse Acquittal Magnifies Divisions in a Polarized America. 
and it's by two reporters, Griff Witt and Hannah uh, Alam. At the very top of this article designed to kind of chide everybody for not being careful with the facts is labeled a correction. And it's a pretty significant correction. It reads, quote, an earlier version of the story incorrectly stated that Kyle Rittenhouse brought his AR-15 across state lines. He has testified that he picked up the weapon from a friend's house in Wisconsin. The article has been corrected. Now, it's nice that they corrected their mistake. It's a good thing for news outlets to do that. Increasingly, these days, they just refuse. But it's kind of amazing, given that this mistake that they made was not some ancillary error about a detail of the case. It was the error that so many people have been asserting over and over on social media during the trial and even before, which is that he carried a weapon across state lines. And if you watched any part of the trial, let alone all of it, the way that reporters who are writing about a news article about the case, presumably at a minimum should have done, you would instantly know that he did not carry his AR-15 across state lines. And yet this false assertion made it into this article written by two reporters, reviewed by editors, presumably by fact checkers, because it was designed to be the fact checking uh, article that was going to set us all straight on what really happened. And obviously what this says to me is that these people who worked on these articles for the Washington Post, including this one, did not actually watch the trial. There is no way you would have made that error which has become so common, if you would watch the trial, you would know for certain that he did not cross state lines to pick up that gun. In fact, that gun and the whereabouts of it was crucial to the trial. It ended up leading to the dismissal of one of the gun charges. The fact that he had it in Kenosha at a friend's house was something that was established fact that nobody contested. But that isn't the part of it I want to focus on. I just found that so amazing. The part I want to focus on, and that led me to this topic, was the Post article said that conservatives, quote, had coalesced around the idea of Rittenhouse as a blameless defender of law and order. And it spent a few paragraphs talking about why conservatives and the narrative they created uh, were sometimes careless with the facts. But it then went on to include this extraordinary admission. Listen to this. It said, quote, despite a lack of evidence, a lack of evidence, hundreds of social media posts immediately pinned Rittenhouse with extremist labels, white supremacist, self-styled militia member, a boogaloo boy seeking violent revolution, or part of the misogynistic incel movement. And it noted that it wasn't just social media, random social media posts claiming this. Joe Biden, the, then a candidate, shortly after the shooting, told CNN's Anderson Cooper that Rittenhouse was part of a militia group. And then he blamed Trump for that and said, quote, have you ever heard this president say one negative thing about white supremacists? The most viral tweet in the day after the shootings in Kenosha was from Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, And it was one of the most viral tweets uh, of the year. She had gone on to Twitter 
the next day and said, quote, a 17-year-old white supremacist domestic terrorist drove across state lines armed with an AR-15. That tweet that called Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist domestic terrorist within 24 hours after the shooting, or 48 at most, got 100,000 retweets and close to 400,000 likes, and it set the narrative for the next 15 months into the trial, one that persists to this very day that Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist. In fact, it was so gospel in media and liberal discourse that Kyle Rittenhouse, even if he was going to be acquitted, was a white supremacist, that you could not question or contest that claim without yourself being accused of being a white supremacist, that nobody could possibly doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist unless you yourself were sympathetic to that bigotry. Now, that's what makes the Washington Post article so extraordinary because the Post article is explicitly saying that from the beginning, there was no evidence for that claim, that claim that became unbelievably widespread. It became the clear media and political consensus. And sometimes I think we fail to stop and ponder how grave of an accusation that is. Here's Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old American, and the entire national media, and in hugely influential politicians like Ayanna Pressley with a major, major platform, have stapled onto his forehead one of the worst things you can possibly be in American political life, as it should be, which is a white supremacist, even though the Post now admits there was never any evidence for that all along. And as I said, I find that event so remarkable that the 17-year-old got called that widely, despite there being no evidence. But I also find it even more remarkable that this Washington Post article acknowledging there was no evidence for it got almost no attention. In fact, three days later, the very same Washington Post published an op-ed that labeled Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist. Exactly what the Post reporters had said lacked evidence. The op-ed by Robert Jones in the Post three days later said, quote, despite his boyish white frat boy appearance, there was plenty of evidence of Rittenhouse's deeper white supremacist orientation. How can a newspaper on, on, on uh, November 21st in their newsroom say there's no evidence for this accusation and then three days later publish an article accusing him of being that? And I think the answer clearly is that in liberal discourse, you can call someone a white supremacist and no evidence is required. It has become such a common tactic, such a reflexive thing to do. It's like liberals and journalists call people white supremacists the way ordinary citizens utter the phrase, excuse me, when they're navigating large crowds, that no one's really bothered by the fact that he got called a white supremacist over and over by the national media only to find out there's no evidence for it because that is the standard. 
that as long as he's white and he seems to have politics that you kind of are uncomfortable with, that's the term that gets applied. It really doesn't mean much anymore operationally, functionally, other than this is a person whose politics I dislike in some way and whose reputation I therefore want to destroy. It reminded me writing that article about this conclusion from the Post that Kyle Rittenhouse all along, there was no evidence for it. And I discuss the evidence that people point to who do want to call him that in the article, which you can go read. I won't delve into that. Probably the primary piece of evidence is that he appeared in a bar where he posed for a picture with people who turned out to be members of the Proud Boys and he made the OK symbol. And people say that that's a white supremacist sign. He has said in interviews that he's done that he didn't know that those were Proud Boy members. They weren't dressed in any uniform. His lawyers, his right-wing lawyers who he subsequently fired, told him to pose that way. He had no idea that the OK sign, which has been a benign common gesture for many decades in American uh, life, that it became a white supremacist symbol. I know if you're addicted to Twitter, it seems like obvious, like everybody would know that, but there are huge numbers of people who have never heard that the OK sign is now a white supremacist signal. But even if you don't believe him, even if you believe that that's proof positive that he is a white supremacist, that actually didn't happen until January of 2021, five months after the shooting. So for five months, when he was being branded a white supremacist, there was clearly no evidence for it. Even if you want to point to that appearance at the bar, unless you had a crystal ball and knew he was going to do that five months later. That's five months of intense media consensus labeling him that without there being any evidence. And it reminded me of an episode that to this very day, I find extremely disturbing that illustrates the same dynamic, which was in June of 2020 in the week after the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police department, which a jury ruled was murder and sentenced, the judge sentenced uh, Derek Chauvin, the person who leaned on uh, George Floyd's neck to life in prison for the conviction of murder. In the week following that, a friend of mine, a longtime colleague and journalist, Lee Fong, who has worked in liberal media circles for a decade or more and has long been associated with the left. And I actually was one of the people who recruited him to come to The Intercept when I first formed The Intercept, even though I had had some disagreements with him, he had actually attacked me from the left on a couple of occasions, but I knew he was a great reporter, so we recruited him. I've worked with Lee since 2014 when he came to The Intercept. I've known him for many years before that. He is somebody who has views about the police that deviate from the standard liberal consensus. He grew up in a rough area in Baltimore, believes violent crime is a serious problem, and does not like anti-police discourse that calls for the dismantling of the police or that demeans or disparages police officers as a group as being racist. He recognizes, obviously, like every decent person does, that some police officers are racist. But in general, he believes the police perform an important service in public, in our society, which is maintaining public safety. And in the week following the George Floyd uh, Jack, he interviewed a Black Lives Matter protester who was Black. His name is Max. And Max, who is a Black protester, made this point that 
is a common point that you can hear people in the black community making, which he said, look, I'm out here protesting because I do believe it's a serious problem when the police kill black people unjustifiably as happened with George Floyd. But what I want to know is there's many, many more deaths of black people, murders of black people, not by white police officers, but by non-white people, including in my neighborhood where I live. It happens all the time. And why is it that all these people who chant Black Lives Matter seem to care only when a white police officer kills and ends a black life, but not when other people do? That was one of the people he interviewed. Many people had different opinions. He posted all the interviews, including that one. And a colleague of his, a journalist at The Intercept named Michaela Lacey, went onto Twitter and explicitly called Lee in two tweets a racist. She said on June 3rd, I'm tired of being made to deal with my coworker Lee Fong continuing to push narratives about black on black crime after repeatedly being asked not to. This isn't about me and it's and, and him. It's about institutional racism and using free speech to couch anti-blackness. I am so fucking tired. And then in the next week, just in case the message wasn't clear enough, she wrote, quote, stop being racist, Lee. That tweet by Akela Lacey accusing the longtime journalist Lee Fong, who, by the way, isn't white, but I know that doesn't matter to most people, but I thought it should note it anyway because it matters to some. That tweet accusing him of being a racist got more than 5,000 retweets and almost 40,000 likes. It went super viral. And it was affirmed and applauded and spread by huge numbers of of people in the national media, including people who really didn't know much about Lee Fong at all or his work. They didn't care. They knew that one of his colleagues called him a racist. They didn't like some of his views on policing. And they were involved in this frenzy of mob justice, condemning him and vilifying him for being a racist, notwithstanding the complete absence of any evidence you ought to need before you apply that devastating, potentially career-ending accusation to somebody. And this is something that happens over and over and over again. There's been a kind of change in the nomenclature. It used to be in liberal discourse that people got accused of racism. It could be because that term got so overused it lost some of its sting. It could be because there was a deliberate escalation. It now the term, the preferred term seems to be white supremacist, which for decades, in my life at least, that really meant groups like the Ku Klux Klan or people who wore Nazi uniforms or who were in overtly racist groups. The idea, I think, was to tell white people that you're not going to get away with only being called racist. That's not enough. If, if Even if you're not like those groups, the ideology that you're affirming is the same. And so you deserve the same label, which is white supremacy. And one of the things that I wrote in the article that I wrote this week on Substack about this is that Anytime anyone is unjustly accused of anything, that's an inherent injustice. We should all be opposed to people being accused of damaging accusations without evidence being presented that it's true in all cases. But in this case, it seems so dangerous to me 
because it, we really are at the point where I think it's almost become caricature, like laughable, that people know that liberals run around, Democrats run around with the greatest of ease, calling anyone they want, anytime the kind of feeling emerges of being a white supremacist. And I do think that that has taken this term, which is an important weapon to use against actual racists, against actual white supremacy, to stigmatize it and ostracize it by naming it and condemning it. But when it starts to become so flagrantly exploited and used unjustifiably and so commonly and with such ease, I think people start losing fear of that term. It loses its sting, including for times when it's actually required. And one of the reasons why I wanted to jump on Colin and talk about this tonight is because it happened to me yet again today. So I kind of have a personal experience with it that's very new. I had, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, um, posted an invitation on Twitter to critics of mine who harbor critiques of my work that I see frequently circulated on Twitter, people claiming I've changed my ideology radically over the past several years, that I'm pandering to the right on cultural issues, that um, I've become some kind of apologist for fascism, if not an overt supporter of it, that my motives are corrupted, that I'm forming my views not based on conviction, but based on financial gain. You know, these are kind of drive-by insults that I see frequently being posted, and they're very difficult on Twitter to engage. Twitter is not a medium that permits constructive discourse. People can say anything, and if you try and ask them for evidence or confront them, they can change it very easily or just ignore it or run away, and the damage is done. So I invited my critics, and I said, look, instead of hurling these insults on Twitter, let's sit down in a more constructive venue we can have a conversation, a substantive conversation on Rumble, by video. We can do it on Colin. That's one of the things that attracted me to this platform is the ability to engage in discourse with critics, as I've said every time I've done a show. And I posted an hour and 15-minute long video discussion of someone who had the integrity, a critic of mine, to email me and step forward and say, I am a critic of yours and I'd like to voice those criticisms and I'm willing to go on camera and talk to you about it. I think it took a lot of courage. I think it displayed a lot of integrity. And we had a really great discussion about it. That was about an hour and 15 minutes long. That's now on Rumble. And there are groups and people whose entire function in life is to monitor everything that you say. Media Matters does it. Vox does it. There are individuals who do it. To try and take little snippets of video or, or words and rip them out of their context and in the most disparaging way possible, put them on social media, frame them with their own framing, basically attributing to you ideas that you don't have, having torn your words out of context in order to create an impression of you that they want to create that's negative. And that was done repeatedly by others today with that discussion I did on, on, on Rumble. I sat for an hour and 15 minutes talking to a critic in a very careful and comprehensive way. And before I could even promote it, little 40 second clips had been taken out of context and spread all over Twitter that were designed to depict me as a white nationalist or a racist or, or things like that. And, and, and I thought 
that was an important uh, kind of experience that maybe you want to go and call in and discuss that. And just one last point I want to note about that is the person with whom I had this, this discussion, his name is Stephen Fritz. He, he was a very earnest, well-intentioned, honest critic. And I could tell that he was honest. He wasn't speaking from malice. He really believed the critiques he was voicing of me. And I could tell that so many of the critiques that he had come to believe, he believed not because he was reading my articles or listening to my interviews or speeches or having read any of my books, but because he had heard these critiques, he had picked them up on social media and was convinced that they were true. Maybe because he saw snippets of things that I had said in the way I described or other kind of, you know, they look for your worst moments that they can reduce you to. And he had very strong views in particular about Tucker Carlson. And one of his critiques was that I go on Tucker Carlson's show, despite the fact that Tucker Carlson's views are so overtly racist, that he should be off limits for any decent person to talk to. And I found that a really interesting uh, claim because he was so emphatic about it. Not that Tucker Carlson had ideas with which he disagreed, but that Tucker Carlson was such an unreconstructed bigot and racist that he was a white nationalist that his overarching ideology of the world is that the United States should be built on white identity, which is very different than my understanding of Tucker Carlson's ideology, having appeared on his show many times and spoken to him at length about his political views. So I asked this critic, I said, look, I'm going to ask you a question. I just would love for you to be honest. And I, I believe you will be honest because you seem like an honest guy. You have really strong opinions about Tucker Carlson's worldview. You feel very strongly about it. Have you ever actually watched his show? Like, have you ever sat down in front of your TV at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern when it's on and turned on to Fox News and watched the monologue and watched the rest of the show or even, you know, gone on YouTube or the Internet and watched his show? in order to have formed such strong opinions about what he thinks? Or is your view and understanding of his ideology and worldview confined to clips that get disseminated by Media Matters and Vox on social media? They have, you know, they pay people to watch people like Tucker Carlson or me for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And when they finally find a, a 30 second clip of yours, that can be made to look bad. That's the one they grab. They obviously don't grab the ones where you make convincing points or you debunk accusations. They, they find the ones where there's enough ambiguity to try and disparage you and they frame it in the way they want and they disseminate it on Twitter. And he said, yeah, I've never watched Tucker's show before. I've only seen clips from Media Matters and Vox and other people like that. And I found that so telling that he, this well-intentioned, earnest person trying to form honest opinions had become so convinced that this person who's been around for a long time, a journalist who's worked for NBC and CNN and now Fox and has written for The Atlantic and many other publications, he was so convinced this person was such a unreconstructed bigot and white supremacist, even though he has never once watched this show. That's the ease with which this term gets stapled to people's foreheads. And I find it 
I find it toxic for the reasons I said. I find it also, though, interesting to interrogate why that is, why this practice has become so accepted, and why in Democratic Party politics and liberal discourse, this tactic has taken such center stage. It's, it's like the way that you win a debate, the way that you feel good about the way, uh, yourself, the way you demonstrate you're a good person is if you get to pin this label onto somebody else without really caring all that much, whether there's ample evidence or even any evidence at all to justify such a grave accusation. So that's the conversation I wanted to have. Those are some of the questions I wanted to pose, to which I honestly don't have very clear answers. I'm still trying to understand how this became such an acceptable practice and why it became such a prominent one. So with that, um, there's about a half an hour. Um, I can try and go a little longer if I can, but it should leave a, a decent amount of time to take some questions. So I'm going to first put on Ben, who for some reason is using a picture of me in his as his avatar. So we'll see how this goes. Ben, if you unmute yourself, I should be able to hear you. Uh, hello, Ben. Uh, can you hear me, Glenn? Yep. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, my question is, according to Thomas Sowell's book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, the problems that Black people face in America are because of their own culture and beliefs rather than systemic racism. And my question is, do you agree with this assessment? I mean, I think, you know, Thomas Sowell is a very complex thinker. I would be reluctant to take one kind of sentence out of his work and say kind of yes or no, I agree with it or not. So I'll just kind of tell you my views about the broader question. I do think race is a crucial component of American history and our current political system. I wrote a book in 2011 about my experience with the justice system. And the entire topic was about the inequities in the justice system that are the byproduct of disparities in class and race. And I definitely think systemic racism is something that exists. I think we've made a huge amount of progress in freeing ourselves from it. But I wouldn't say that that's a problem that has been entirely overcome. But I also wouldn't say that there's something inherent about Black culture that creates whatever pathologies you're trying to attribute to the Black community, whether it's problems with crime or poverty or whatever. I think there's an incredibly complex set of, of factors, one of which is racism, not all of which. I think poverty is a much bigger hurdle um, than races. I think that's a, a much bigger factor for me is, is class rather than race. Yeah, because uh, he, he, he kind of argues that um, a lot of their, uh, what uh, one might be called ghetto culture, actually has its roots in the uh, antebellum South, when in the, uh, what he calls the cracker culture of uh, Welsh, Highland Scots, uh, certain uh, Scottish and English uh, immigrants, basically. Uh, so he attributes it more to, uh, to that rather than biological factors or, uh, or even, uh, like you said, poverty. So uh, I was just curious on uh, your opinions on that. Yeah, it, it, man, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, I just I want to avoid kind of accepting the characterization of 
Thomas Sowell's uh, decades of scholarship on the questions of, of race and, and other factors. Um, it's a little reductive, I think, but, you know, like I said, um, I think race is a very complex tactic, uh, topic, especially in the United States, um, where slavery and then Jim Crow lasted for so many generations that it's impossible to deny that it has some effect still on modern political life. Um, but I really do believe that oftentimes what is attributed to race is actually the byproduct of unequal opportunity and the fact that income and wealth inequality is still so severe in the United States that so often our fate in life is determined by the kind of luck of the draw into which kind of family we were born into as opposed to merit and talent. So I appreciate the question. Um, next is Sal. If you unmute yourself, um, you should be ready to go. Oh, I'm not sure what happened to Sal. If you get back in the queue, I don't know if you disconnected. Um, I will make sure that you go to the front of the line. But Kathy, go ahead. Okay. Hi. Um, you know, I've noticed that I'm 62. When when I was younger, you know, racism, you know, anti-racism was really focused more on assimilation of people. Um, and then there was there's been a different focus. You know, so back then... You know, people would say things like, I don't see color, you know, it means nothing to me. And a lot of times it was pretty hypocritical because, you know, they were, uh, there was no, um, you know, they weren't considering the uh, legacy of slavery and so forth. It is, you know, given people a great disadvantage, people of color in this country. So, um but then it turned into this whole diversity thing. And I feel like, you know, there certainly is diversity among all cultures. I mean, different cultures. And um, I'm not advocating for any homogenized, you know, society. But it seems to me we've kind of gone beyond, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think it is a matter of, of, you know, race is a social construct, you know, so I think we need to go beyond to, to realize that people really are, you know, brothers and sisters under the epidermis, as my seventh grade health teacher used to say, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it just seems like it's been manipulated to me to be, you know, which it always has been used by, you know, elites to create division within the working class. And now I think it's consciously done. Um, you know, obviously race is something, these cultural issues are a way to distract also completely from class. Not that they're not um, a valid, you know, other point of struggle, but, you know, the, it, it's used to sort of hide the the commonality of different races, you know, of people who are in the working class. So, you know, also like, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking when Hillary Clinton was running for president that she was going to set the women's movement back, you know, 50 years because of all her bourgeois feminism and glass ceiling kind of emphasis instead of, um, you know, a more broader idea of the women's movement and, and being inclusive of 
different races and different classes, you know, she was mainly focused on, you know, uh, the glass ceiling and having, you know, somebody break through the glass ceiling with kind of a tokenism thing. And and it, I think it has. I mean, you know, a lot of people were very disgusted with her for calling Bernie Sanders a um, sexist and so forth. And and I think people are getting a little bit of fatigue from the from you know the political correctness, the race political correctness thing. Um, <clears throat> not that I don't think there's something, you know. That, I mean, we're all racist if we're we've been raised in the society, all of us, no matter what color we are, have, you know, absorbed some of that racism. Um, But at the end of the day, I think we have to just try to think on the most basic level of thinking of others as human beings, you know, and understanding factors that have created, you know, the inequality as it stands now. And I just feel like, all, a lot of the people that are really focusing on this political correctness are white people. They're not people of color. And and I don't really feel their sincerity because, you know, they're, they're you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to bring some of these people over to your side, you know, instead of just labeling them as deplorables and forgetting about them. I mean, they're excluding you know huge swaths of america now um as white supremacists basically anybody who's republican now and i i feel like they're not trying to it's not focused on on solving the problem it's more like just getting off on calling somebody else names of just they and there's a there's a yeah, let me so let me just interject because there's there's a lot there and and um you know I actually I, as you I was I was listening very carefully to what you were saying and one of the things that struck me was most of what you were saying was not you know you kind of avoided ever a an emphatic view you were kind of ambivalent in in seeing both sides of all of those issues and I really believe that's how most people think about these issues you know there's this kind of um, if you say one of the things you had said was, you know, we try not to see color in other people, that it's a, a social construct. And it's the kind of thing that if you say, you kind of got mocked for it, you know, like that the idea of, well, you can say you don't see race, but that means that you're just not looking for it because in society, it's still there whether you see it or not. And I think that a lot of times that's a very ungenerous way of thinking about it. I think the idea of, I don't look at other people and see race, I see an individual, I see, I try and find the common humanity. It's not a denial that race is, is in the air, right? It's, it's really more like an aspiration. And, and I don't know why it's become prohibited to remind everyone that that was the core of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, that, um, that the aspiration was that we will view each other on the content of your character and not the color of your skin. But that, you know, is something that I think that we ought to continue to try and affirm. And I think the ambivalence that you're talking about, to me, signifies the fact that as human beings, all of us do have both a good side and a darker side. And political discourse can stimulate one or the other. And I think one of the problems that a lot of people have 
who believe there has been progress made in the United States when it comes to racial division is that that progress has come from appealing to people's better angels. I think that's where progress on gay issues has come from. I think that's where progress on feminism has come from, more opportunities for people based on their merit instead of who they are, that you appeal to people's better side. And a lot of the current discourse has started to do the opposite. It started to encourage us not to aspire to those ideals any longer, but to almost force us to view each other and ourselves primarily as a member of a balkanized racial group. And I think the concern that you're expressing, this divisive potential that it has to tear us apart and to kind of inject into society impulses that can be very inflammatory and very divisive and appeal not to our better side, but stimulate our darker side is the thing that I think is, is causing a lot of backlash, including among people of good faith like yourself who are not defensively denying that racism exists and that maybe there's not, you know, that there could be lingering in all of us some element of it, but that it seems to almost be demanding that we go further in that direction as opposed to working to move away from it. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. That's pretty much what I was saying. I mean, I, I basically feel like also liberals, have, have, I mean, I, I consider myself left of liberals, so, but, you know, they, it seems to me that, that they're so vindictive lately, you know, I mean, they want to, I guess they're, you know, people who are upset also, and they, you know, but there's this desire to punish everyone, and, you know, I don't know, I, 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 I've never seen it before like this, you know. Yeah, well, let, Kathy, listen, um, let me move on to a, a couple other calls. Um, but I think your points are are really well taken. Um, that last point that you made about um, people being angry, I think, is on one that's often overlooked. You know, if you look even before COVID, there was a lot of mental health pathology, a lot of anxiety disorders, a lot of depression, a lot of drug addiction. People are obviously not getting what they need from society and it's creating a lot of frustration. And when you add on top of that, a pandemic where people were forced to stay in their homes, their businesses were closed, society as we know it kind of came to a halt. The few connections that we had um, were taken away and people were isolated even further. I think you're right. There's a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. And a lot of times that gets displaced in the discourse. And the more you can kind of condemn somebody and tear them apart and publicly destroy their reputation, it's kind of a release of that anger. And there's also always a good feeling of being part of a mob, of being part of mob justice, condemning someone else. If you're doing the condemning, it means that you're not guilty because you're angry about this offense. And so I think there's a lot of complex social and, and psychological dynamics that are going into a lot of this as well. Um, next person in the queue is Amir. So go ahead and unmute yourself. Okay. I'm not sure why Amir dropped off. So if you appear in the queue again, um, I will put you to the front of the line. The next caller is Jack. Hey Glenn, I appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you taking my call. Uh, I just had a, a possible answer to uh, your question about why you're seeing the, pe- the term white supremacist just be so overblown. 
uh, on social media and also uh, other news organizations. But as far as social media goes, the algorithm doesn't reward common sense. You have to be somewhat over top in order to get your tweets, uh, get engagement. You don't see a lot of Kyle Rittenhouse tweets that just say, yeah, you know, I think what he did maybe wasn't the smartest decision to bring a gun into Kenosha or whatever you think. But, you know, he, he was he was acting in self-defense. That's not something that you're going to see at the top of the the Twitter trending page. So the algorithm really just rewards these kind of crazy labels that catch people's eyes. And then you see people or I guess or you see news organizations like The Washington Post that just co-opt this this language to to keep us divided and not be thinking about the real problem, which is elites. Yeah, you know, I think those are two crucial points. Um, let me just expand on them for a second because I I'm I'm, I, I'm really glad you you brought both of those up. Um, you know, I, I first of all, you're absolutely right. Obviously, I think anyone who's who's used social media knows that you're right when you say that what you, what gets rewarded are these kind of very polarizing statements. Anything that entails nuance or ambivalence or uncertainty kind of just falls flat. And we all know that, you know, we've all posted who anyone uses uh, uh, Twitter or, or any kind of social media statements where you're very kind of fist on the table, you know, banner waved in the air. Those are the ones that get people riled up and you get the endorphins from all the likes and retweets. And then a tweet where you say, you know what, I'm not particularly certain about this. Any admission that you're not sure is almost certain to be ignored. And then you get that positive and negative reinforcement about what people are responding to and you almost get addicted. It, I mean, not almost. I think these social media sites are designed to be addictive. Those endorphins are literal chemical reactions in your brain that provide pleasure that the more you have, the more you want and your brain gets trained to know that you'll get those if you condemn and denounce. And if you gather a mob that is assembled to destroy somebody that's what gets the pulsating juices going and and i and again i do think for you know people who are being denied purpose and community and religion and purpose in their jobs the people have trouble even moving out of their parents house because they're overwhelmed with that they can't start families i think a lot of this can start to become um you know like a lot of this can start to become um, you know, the way that people get purpose. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that that is one of the, um, that that is absolutely one of the, um, issues. Hold on one second. I think there's an audio, uh, problem for me. Let me try and move myself a little bit. Um, so I think the social dynamics are, are absolutely crucial. Um, and then, you know, I also think you're right that the more we kind of are engaged in this discourse, Who's a racist? Who's a white supremacist? Who's a white nationalist? Who's woke? Who isn't? All of the issues about how power is distributed, how power centers function, the ability for people to join together based on class, which, you know, if you talk about the working class in the United States now, it is by definition a very multiracial working class. Um, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, whether by design or effect, it is impeding any movement based on that. I mean, as we're all sitting here 
you know, having these kind of discussions about Republicans or any Trump supporters being inherently racist or white supremacist, what you're actually seeing is this migration of non-white people to the Republican Party, which for someone attached to liberal discourse makes no sense, right? We were told that Trump was this Hitler-like figure. He was putting uh, people from Central American and, and South American countries, their kids into cages on purpose to be malicious, that he was a racist, that he was a white supremacist. And yet, for whatever reasons, the people who ought to be most offended by that, who ought to be most scared by that, are increasingly supporting the Republican Party, apparently either because they don't think that's true or because those aren't the metrics they're using when deciding which politicians they want to support. So I think a lot of it is designed to obfuscate those bigger issues or at least has the effect to do so. Yep, totally agree. Thank you for taking my call, Glenn. All right, thank you. appreciate the contribution. Uh, the next person is Reed. Let me just... Uh, Make sure you're in the queue. One second. Actually, the next caller is JJ. So if you unmute yourself, you should be able to go. Sorry, took a minute to find the unmute. Um, <laughs> no worries. I, I empathize completely. Um, so I've been, you know, trying to think. There just feels like there's. Um, two totally different frames on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And perhaps I, as a white American, um, are, am looking at this trial through the lens of justice, whereas a great many others have reason to look at it through the lens of injustice. Um, you know, like, would the outcome have been the same if, you know, all the races were flipped, et cetera, and just a, a legacy of injustice? Um, anyway, I just thought I would pose that question. Yeah, you know, I think, it, I do think we have to acknowledge that we all bring our personal experience to these questions, that there's no objective truth in any human political debates because we're not really... Uh, objective creatures, right? So we necessarily are viewing these things through a subjective lens. Um, you know, I think Kyle Rittenhouse did become a proxy for both the left and the right. For the right, he became a symbol of somebody who was so frustrated with the failure of the government to keep public order because the governors and mayors of blue states and liberal cities were petrified of appearing uh, and uh, I, 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 against the Black Lives Matter movement that they allowed violence and unrest to go unopposed. And citizens finally picked up arms and said, we're going to have to do this ourselves. He obviously became kind of heroic in the eyes of a lot of people like uh, who, who believed in, in that framework. And then to a lot of, you know, kind of liberal America, he became this symbol that for a long time, has been representative of what they find most pernicious, which is a white conservative kid from the middle of the country who believes in guns, who likes the police and supports Donald Trump. It, in a lot of ways, you don't really need to know much more about somebody to believe that they're a white supremacist. I do think when I was talking earlier about the lack of evidence for that accusation, that is where it came from and how we 
think about these issues is probably a lot in a lot of ways a byproduct of our political sensibilities, our life experiences. I mean, I definitely know that my own views of race are affected by the fact that I am part of a multiracial family, that I'm married to a black man, that we have two brown children we adopted. And so any rhetoric that seems to me to be tearing people apart based on race or forcing us to view one another through a prism of race or that creates expectations for what non-white people are and are not permitted to do and think and say and what their politics has to be, this kind of oppression that gets imposed under this condescending or patronizing banner of enlightenment. I do look at that with a lot more interest, emotional and visceral interest than I did, say, before I was married and before I had kids. So I think we all bring our own experiences to it. Um, and I think the Rittenhouse uh, trial, in, in a lot of ways, became a proxy for so many of those things, which is why it was so hard to get a, a, an agreed-to set of facts. But the one thing that I think we should be able to agree to is that this white supremacist label that got applied to him with such force was without evidence and therefore an extreme injustice, even if you believe that he ought to have been convicted or that he otherwise behaved in unwise or even illegal ways. Um, next up in the queue is Gina. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is related to a lot of what we're talking about. I'm hearing a lot of discussion tonight. You used the word Balkans, uh, the Balkanization earlier. And, um, and I started working in journalism in 98. And over several years, I worked in a couple different newsrooms. And it was clear all the way back then to me that everyone from the youngest reporter to the most experienced editor had really chosen a political tribe. Um, and I was pretty disillusioned and I guess naive um, thinking that we were supposed to be setting aside our personal allegiances and biases when we were at work, you know, and, and really striving to be as objective as possible and not take sides in, in a story. And so what I'm really seeing is um, tribalism seems to have taken over American journalism um, as well as our culture. And uh, I've only recently discovered you uh, after you left The Intercept, but it seems to me like you're really succeeding in the best of traditional journalism, that you are somehow able to resist temptations to pick a tribe and approach your work through a tribal lens. So I just wanted to ask how you've resisted that temptation over the years, both personally and as a professional journalist, and how can the rest of us learn from you um, and your ability to critique the left and the right equally? And, you know, not give our own side a pass if we have a side, but just really be intellectually honest and apply those values and morals that we claim to hold to our own side, as well as people we disagree with. Well, first of all, thank you, uh, you know, very much for those nice words. Those are uh, that is praise that means a lot to me because that absolutely is what I aspire to do in in my work. You know, it's actually interesting and, and kind of ironic because when I first began writing about politics um, in 2005, one of the critiques that I had of corporate media was that they often feigned an objectivity or a neutrality that was fraudulent, that human beings don't reside above political 
controversies. We don't see the world objectively. As I was saying earlier, we all see the world through a subjective prism and we can do our best to try and grapple with facts and, and, and determine truth as best we can. But we all have to acknowledge that we do come to that effort with a whole series of subjective biases that are the byproduct of our life experience or our religious belief or our political framework. And I always felt like it was a fraud for journalists to pretend that they didn't have opinions about the things they were reporting on. Um, And I felt like one of the things that had been neutering journalism and, and actually making it dishonest was this obsession with always kind of staying right exactly in the middle and never taking a side of any debate. One of the examples that kind of motivated me to to adopt that concern was I had believed pretty strongly in the wake of the war on terror and the critiques that I had of it, that the interrogation tactics the United States had been using, not just waterboarding, but sleep deprivation and using freezing temperatures and stress positions was torture, that, that that had been considered torture for centuries. We had always called it torture when it was done to our own soldiers. And the government, the, the Bush administration at the time, had taken the position that it wasn't torture. They had created a euphemism for it, harsh interrogation techniques. And the position of the media at the time, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, the networks, was, look, we're not here to pick a side and say whether or not this is torture. We'll report that human rights groups think it's torture, and then we'll report that the Bush administration denies it is, and we'll kind of wash our hands of it and call it a day that it's not really our our job to pick sides. And I always felt like that was such a fraud, that like the job of journalism is to figure out which side is telling the truth and which side isn't. And I also felt like hiding what you really believe because you feel like it will jeopardize or compromise your objectivity was eroding faith and trust in journalism. So, for example, when I was doing the Snowden reporting, when I reported on mass surveillance that had been implemented by the U.S. government through the NSA as a result of the documents given to me by my source, Edward Snowden, in 2013 and 2014, I had strong opinions about mass surveillance. I believed it was unethical and dangerous and destructive and unconstitutional and illegal And as I was doing the reporting, I didn't feel like I should hide that and pretend I had no opinions because that would be dishonest. So I made clear what my views were so that people understood that I had, I came to this with a perspective, but I also tried to be very, very vigilant about making sure I nonetheless was creating these documents with as much honesty as I could, that I couldn't conceal a document that might make the NSA look good or exaggerate a document that might make it look worse. So I was able to kind of draw this dichotomy between being candid about my subjective views on the one hand and still at the same time grappling and trying as hard as I could to be faithful to my job as a journalist and disclose the facts wherever they might want to take, wherever they, they take me. And I think the biggest lesson was, you know, I began writing in 2005. My focus was civil liberties. My view was that the war on terror had become very abusive and excessive when it came to civil liberties. The support that I got at the time, the reason I was able to develop a large audience very quickly when I started, despite not working at a major media outlet, 
came from Democrats and liberals and the left who loved the fact that I was critiquing George Bush and Dick Cheney and their war on terror policies and their assault on civil liberties. And I saw that when Barack Obama became president and, and campaigned on reversing and eliminating those policies, but when he got into power, he instead continued most of them and even extended some of them beyond where they had been, I obviously didn't think twice about continuing to apply the exact same critique that I had for George Bush and Dick Cheney. It didn't get better for me because now a Democrat was doing it. And I saw a huge number of Democrats who had spent years pretending to believe in civil liberties and to be so appalled by these policies suddenly lose all interest or even become active defenders of those very same policies they had been condemning when done by a Republican, now that it was Barack Obama and Joe Biden who were doing it instead. And I was actually kind of repulsed by that, that complete lack of intellectual honesty and integrity that I noticed for the first time in a really visceral way when Barack Obama became president and kind of vowed never to fall into that temptation of tribalism, never to pull punches about what I think in order to please one camp or undermine another, that all that you have in, in, in your public life as a journalist or a person is your integrity, is like your ability to say what you think you're seeing to the best possible uh, extent that you can. And the minute you compromise that in order to help one party or undermine another, for me, you, you, you lose all value and worth. You lose your integrity and your honesty and you become just kind of a, like a hack, you know, like a, just somebody who goes and works for a party, which is something I never wanted to be. So I, I wish I could tell you it was this kind of lofty principle that, that motivated me to try and do journalism this way. But I think it was really this kind of revulsion that I felt for the people I was watching who weren't doing that. And I think the Trump years fortified that even more when I saw so many people in journalism endorse a conspiracy theory that was as unhinged as it was bereft of evidence, which was this crazy conspiracy theory that Russia had taken over the United States. And a lot of them were saying it and knew that it was false because they knew it would help their careers or would undermine Trump. And and so I just tried to stay as true as possible um, to that to that model um so let me take uh one last call which we've been doing this for about an hour just a little over an hour which is what i said we would try and limit it to so the last one is mauricio and as always if you're in the queue please come back for the next show um and i will try and take as always as many calls as i can go ahead and unmute yourself mauricio uh hey can you hear me yep i can hear you excellent well thank you for everything you do um the point i wanted to touch on was the importance and the impact of Julian Assange and his fundamental idea of transparency. And the way everybody talks about the algorithm, the algorithm does this, as though it's some you know, wizard behind the curtain. Um, considering your influence and you have the ear of some tech people like over at Rumble, what's the, is there any conversation about making the algorithm itself transparent? For example, I, put, I could put a slider that says, you know, let me see what you would show a conservative or what you would show a liberal. Yeah, um, you know, it's a great question, uh, in part because, you know, I think one of the big problems people have with tech companies beyond 
the attempt to control and police our discourse is the utter lack of transparency by which they do that. So all the time, accounts will disappear from Twitter, people will get banned from Facebook, or videos get taken down from YouTube, and no one has any idea why it happened. It seems very arbitrary. They don't explain it. There's no disclosure requirement. Sometimes it seems like artificial intelligence has gone haywire. Other times, it seems like a politically biased decision. And the more they stay opaque and secretive about it, and the less transparency they provide, the more distrust builds in that process. And I think Twitter and Jack Dorsey have been you know, particularly strident about the need for more transparency, about promising more transparency, though I don't think we've had as much of it. As far as, I don't want to speak for Rumble too much because I've only been there for a few months. I don't have any like ownership stake in the company. I don't run the company. But my understanding sure, sure. about Rumble is that they actually don't use algorithms in the sense that they're studying who you are and what you like as a person and then giving you the content that they think you will most be engaged by. I think that the, and again, I, I, I could be wrong about this. This is my understanding. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this part's true. The, all they do is they have kind of categories on their homepage that everyone sees equally. It's not like you see one and I see a different one based on what we like or what we do. So they have the leaderboard, which are the most liked or most watched videos. They have recommended videos based on category. I don't know exactly how they choose their editor's picks and the like, but I believe that Rumble is not using algorithms in the sense of studying who you are and then feeding you what you want to make you as angry as possible so you'll stay as engaged. I don't think Substack is doing that either. But I think you're absolutely right that we should know for certain what these platforms are doing in all cases, because the more transparency there is, the more trust there will be built and how they're functioning. Yeah, because I feel the technology itself is neutral. Like the algorithms could be good, like Netflix can make good recommendations, but just being able to see what they're basing it on and what their assumptions are would be helpful. Yeah, you know, I'll just, it's a great note to end on. And I'll just tell you, you know, I kind of play this game where I try and outsmart Gmail, um, where, you know, if I'm writing an email, Gmail is frequently offering me suggestions about what I should say. And I try really hard never to take their suggestions because I feel like it means that Gmail has deciphered how my brain works. And I find myself increasingly almost unable to avoid it because the things that I actually need to say are the things that they've offered me. Um, what to say? The algorithms are, are really powerful. You know, they become increasingly powerful as they learn more and more about how we function and the data that they collect on us. Um, is enabling them to understand more and more how we function. It's, it can be a scary technology, but you know, as you said, it can also be a good one. I end up watching things on YouTube that I never would have seen that I actually find educational and enlightening because YouTube figured out that I would be interested in it. I didn't even know it existed, so I would never have looked for it on my own. So you're right, it sometimes does offer benefits. Um, but we also have to be very careful because it's such a potent technology. The abuses are very obvious. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right that at the very least transparency, uh, is the absolute prerequisite in order for us to kind of tolerate these technologies and the role that they're playing in our lives. Well, look, everybody, I, um, any discussion about race and about white supremacy and about, 
white nationalism and how we think about that and how we use that is always very kind of uh, complex and potentially inflammatory. So I really appreciate the people who stepped forward and spoke candidly about what is often a, a difficult topic. I, I, you know, think a lot of these issues and questions don't lend themselves to clear and, and definitive answers. And one of the reasons I'm so thrilled every time I get off Twitter and kind of find a platform like this as an oasis is because the need to be so definitive to feign, you know, conclusive knowledge about things, it's kind of relieved. And you can have these sorts of more, I think, common and more human uh, conversations where there's nuance and ambiguity and uncertainty and that doesn't create shame or failure, but leads to greater enlightenment. So that's how I hope to continue to use this platform, as well as give people the opportunity to pose questions that um, they'd like to hear me answer to have a kind of conversation like we had with several of the people who stepped up tonight. So thank you as usual for everyone who, who came and participated and took your time to do that. And I hope to keep seeing you here at the podcast. Um, have a great night. Talk to you soon.